the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Whether we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism will be our credo. Leading the right out of the ashes, this is The Right Take. Hello, everybody. How's it going? This is episode number 63 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm here with my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff. And Jacob, I don't think we've looked forward to an episode quite like this one in a very long time. Oh, no, no. I've been looking forward to this uh, since Monday, to be exact. Oh, yeah. And again, we are recording this. Uh, the day we're recording this, actually, it's a very rainy day outside, uh, which I think reflects quite nicely the uh, the mood of this festering, rotten city in the aftermath of the news that broke very late Monday. So rest assured, we will spend a good amount of time in this episode talking about Ho versus Wade. Excuse me, Rover. Wade. Uh, but for the time being, we have to do, I, I got to do this. We got to do election recap because, of course, primary season technically started back in March with the Texas primaries, but that was unusually early. The first major start to the primary cycle started on Tuesday. So we started with Ohio and Indiana. And now for the next two months from now until July, there will be primaries every single week with the exception of the first week of June. In a variety of states, there will be some states that will be kind of, you know, obviously obvious predictions from the start as to what those outcomes will be, and then others that are obviously much more contested swing states. So we will be covering those. But on Tuesday, we had 
Indiana and the big one, Ohio. So first things first, President Trump once again racking up a perfect night of endorsements. He made 22 endorsements in both states, and all 22 of them won their primaries. So his total for the year 2022 now is 55 and 0. He's doing very well for himself. The big race of the night, of course. He endorsed quite a few incumbents here and there who were obviously going to win. The big race of the night was the U.S. Senate primary for the Republican Party. Our boy, Hillbilly Elegy author J.D. Vance pulled it off. Now, for a bit of a reminder, again, prior to Trump's endorsement, J.D., when he first announced his run back in July of last year, he briefly rose into a kind of comfortable second place. And then by about November, in most polling averages, had fallen back down and was most often polling in third or even fourth place. He was not doing well out of the five major candidates. There were seven total. So fourth out of seven candidates, which is not great. Up until Trump's endorsement, he then surged into first place in the polling, but polling still had it kind of tedious. They generally put him in the mid-20s range. One poll commissioned by his campaign by Fabrizio Lee had him at 31%. But again, the expectation was it would be like maybe 25%, 26%. It would be a, a, a quarter. He would win with a quarter of voters. He got 32% in this primary, guys. He crushed it almost 10 points more than the next highest candidate, which was Josh Mandel. He is the nominee for the U.S. Senate, and bookmakers have him as the overwhelming favorite to win the general election against Congressman Tim Ryan. So congratulations, Mr. Hillbilly. Man, you will be going to the U.S. Senate in November, God willing, barring some kind of freak accident of some kind on the campaign trail. And it cannot be overstated how important this was, how much this reaffirmed that Trump is still very much in control of the Republican Party and his endorsements absolutely don't just make a difference. They carry candidates over the finish line. That is what happened in Ohio. Interesting side notes as well. Uh, the GOP primary for U.S. Senate saw over one million total votes between all seven candidates, more than twice the amount of votes cast in the Democratic side where there were three candidates. Running. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that. Uh, it, it's quite clear that Ohio is a state that is shifting pretty solidly to the right in the Trump era. And again, that's why it is widely predicted that Ohio, that J.D. Vance will win the Ohio Senate seat. Uh, some other fun little side notes. Progressives suffered a big loss. In the 11th Congressional District, when there was a rematch between Congresswoman Chantel Brown and Nina Turner, a former campaign spokeswoman for the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, they're both black women. It is a heavily Democratic district. The previous incumbent there was Marcia Fudge, who resigned to become the uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Biden administration. So a special election was held last year, and they were the two major opponents in the Democratic primary. Brown won, and she went on to win the election because it's a very blue seat. So Turner came back for a rematch, thinking, oh, this time I'm going to win. It was like Bernie 2020, basically. And she got pulverized 67 to 34%. So uh, she was backed by Bernie and AOC and others, whereas uh, Chantel Brown was backed by Biden and Pelosi and all the others. So a complete loss for the progressive wing once again. So the Bernie bros and the AOC squad coping and seething after that one. Uh, one interesting race that is worth noting before we move on here, the the governor's primary in Ohio. So the incumbent governor is Republican Mike DeWine. He was elected uh, in 2018 to succeed John Kasich. And he actually had a couple of challengers in this primary. Former Congressman Jim Renacci, who previously was the nominee for the U.S. Senate in 2018, where he lost to Sherrod Brown, and a farmer by the name of Joe Blystone. So going into this, DeWine actually, his approval ratings were down among the Republican base, primarily because he was one of the first governors, among the earliest governors in the country, to support heavy COVID lockdowns. Like, he went all in on shutting down businesses and everything as a Republican, mind you. Uh, he also refuses to acknowledge that there was voter fraud in 2020. He broke with Trump on that. So Trump very publicly criticized him a few times. Trump stopped just shy of endorsing a challenger to DeWine, but there always was this sentiment against him, this anti-DeWine sentiment among the conservative base. So uh, for a bit of inside baseball on this, 
I actually was talking about this with our buddy Kyle Winner, who uh, some of you may remember he was generous enough to host Jacob and I on his radio show, The Troy Show, last year, our first ever uh, appearance or interview of any kind as the hosts of this podcast. And, of course, he is in Ohio, so we were talking about this before the primary and certainly after the results. And he was the most invested in the governor's race, more so than the Senate race or any of those others. And he's very anti-DeWine. He actually, I think he mentioned on the radio show when we talked to him, Jacob, he supported Blystone, who uh, definitely ran as like a grassroots outsider versus Renacy, who's a wealthy, self-funded congressman and former Senate nominee. Um, but by the time it was all said and done, it was expected DeWine would probably win. When all was said and done, DeWine ultimately got 48.1% of the vote. So less than a majority. Renacy got 28%. Blystone managed to get 21.8%. And another candidate, a, uh, a state legislator named Ron Hood, got 2.1%. So between the two major candidates, you got 49.8%, which is just slightly higher than what uh, DeWine got by himself. And then you throw in Ron Hood's total for 51.9%. So just a little over. So basically a 52-48 margin. So the point being that had there been a single, dynamic, passionate, enthusiastic candidate running against DeWine, if it was one-on-one, if it was a mano-a-mano, DeWine very well could have been primaried. And I was talking to Kyle about this, and— uh, I asked him, of course, for permission to name drop him on our show. Of course, he's a, he's a friend of ours. He's a great radio host. He uh, has since ascended to the celestial far right. He now self-identifies as a newcomer to the Elon Musk AI master race. So our buddy Kyle is definitely uh, doing great with the self-improvement there. But uh, his exact words, because I, I had to uh, to quote this, he said, If Renacy wasn't so boring and if Blystone knew what he was talking about half the time, DeWine could have actually lost. So... Basically, meaning that if these candidates both had their problems and neither of them uh, certainly together in the same primary, we're not going to beat DeWine. But even if it had been just a one on one, they had problems that held them back. But if you had a single challenger, then DeWine could have been primary. and That would have been a huge upset. It's funny, actually. Kyle was at the Trump rally for J.D. Vance and several other candidates in Delaware, Ohio, which is just outside Cleveland, I believe. And he met. Congressman Renacy, the uh, the gubernatorial candidate, and he said Renacy was so boring and underwhelming, I didn't recognize him until he introduced himself. So, I mean, we, we all we know that there are definitely lots of politicians and candidates out there who are like that, who are just so underwhelming in person. You wonder how they could possibly think to run for office, let mm-hmm. alone a statewide office. Well, so. the, the establishment they were hoping to do in the Senate race, they were kind of hoping to do that same thing where they were hoping all the Trumpian voters would unite, would yes. split their votes. And then uh, Matt Dolan, who didn't really kind of sold himself as the anti-Trump candidate, yes. would end up ma- managing to pull off a victory. Of course, it didn't work. Thankfully, it didn't work. I was watching those results coming in, too. At a certain point, at about 15 percent of the vote reporting in, Vance's lead had shrunk to like 2 percent over Dolan. Dolan in second place. I was sweating bullets. I'm like, oh, this will be embarrassing. The New York Times would have a field day with that. But then once more, the, the specifically once those were all the early votes before Trump made his endorsement. Once the Election Day votes started rolling in with, from people who knew who Trump endorsed. Vance just ran away with it. Uh, Don Jr. tweeted his congratulations. You know, said all the millions these rhinos spent to try to stop my man, J.D. Vance, and it failed. So Godspeed, Mr. Vance. And uh, again, DeWine is, uh, like Vance, DeWine is the favorite to win the general election. So, hey, if he can keep that seat in red hands, then uh, then good for him. Good for you, Governor DeWine. So now we move on. What else could we possibly talk about? But late breaking news Monday night. Jacob, did, did something happen? Older women's heads exploded once they realized that their entire life's work is wiped out with a single decision. And America is already a better place for it. <laughs> no, but legitimately, like the of the people that I've interacted with, it's mainly older women who are the most distraught over this decision. Of course, we're talking about 
the leak that went to Politico Monday night, or at least they released the leak Monday night, showing that the Supreme Court is set to overturn Roe versus Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision that made abortion a fundamental right, a fundamental constitutional right in the United States. And of course, next year would be the 50th year anniversary. And you mm-hmm. can just imagine the adulation and the, the, the celebratory nature of that year in the minds of all of these feminists who see this, who see, really do see Roe v. Wade as the culmination of hundreds and hundreds of years of hard work on their part. And they're not going to get to celebrate that 50th year anniversary. It's it genuinely a cry and shame. You know, if, if I were yeah. in their position, I would probably be just as distraught. Oh, yeah. The culmination of feminism basically is what it was. But to think that it, you know, Roe v. Wade, if, if Roe v. Wade was a person, it might as well have had, you know, lung, some kind of lung cancer or something from smoking a little too much because it didn't even live to see 50. And that is just so glorious. It's delicious. It is a remnant of certainly, you know, the hippie era of the 60s and 70s. The sexual revolution It is one of the cornerstones of the sexual revolution because the way and we're going to get into this of course abortion very much is viewed as an excuse to basically have reckless irresponsible unprotected sex you know certainly in colleges among younger people knowing oh okay on the off chance the woman gets pregnant oh she can just get an abortion it's fine because it's legal nationwide it's it's mandated as legal again supposedly as a constitutional right until this decision by five the five real conservative justices of the Supreme Courts. The justice who wrote this, of course, is surprisingly not Clarence Thomas, which is what I, I personally was hoping for. I think we both were hoping for because he is the best justice by far. But it is written by Samuel Alito, another one of the conservative justices, basically arguing that this isn't really a 14th Amendment, that this is a 10th Amendment issue. It's not listed in the Constitution as an explicit guaranteed right. Therefore, it is to be left up to the states. There's a reason that was the 10th and final bill in the Bill of Rights. It says, you know, okay, everything not mentioned in these first nine amendments Everything else, y- y'all, the state's got to decide that. That's up to the individual states to decide, and that's what you were already seeing. So just a re- quick recap of Roe, because most people know what it is, but they don't know exactly the like the details. So Norma McCorvey, she was known as Jane Roe. She became pregnant with her third child and wanted to abort the baby because she didn't want three children. In Texas, abortion was only Ill- was only legal when it was necessary to save the mother's life. The district court ruled in her favor, and then the Texas Attorney General appealed to the Supreme Court in 1973. And in a 7-2 decision, the most active Supreme Court in U.S. history ruled that abortion is protected under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The court classified the right to choose to have an abortion as fundamental, and it required the courts to evaluate challenged abortion laws that were brought and were challenged. It forced the court to evaluate those under the, quote-unquote, strict scrutiny clause and that's uh they developed the court developed that during the new deal on um, fdr one of fdr's laws so an example is the japanese intern uh, internment camps during world war ii technically the court ruled okay this is unconstitutional but because this passes the strict scrutiny level of muster from the federal government we're going to rule the federal government can go ahead and do this because the state has a vested interest in interning these japanese citizens of japanese heritage in these camps so that's what the strict scrutiny um, clause is the court ruled that during the first – and this is part of the Roe decision. It ruled that during the first trimester, governments could not prohibit abortions at all. During the second trimester, governments could require reasonable health regulations. During the third trimester, abortions could be prohibited entirely as long as the laws contained exceptions for cases when they were necessary to save the life or the health of the mur- of the mother. And as we're going to mention in a second, this is actually opens up the door for third semester uh, abortion – third trimester abortions. Now – the due process that forbids the government from depriving anyone of life, liberty, or property except as authorized by law. 
In the Fifth Amendment, it says no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And in the Fourteenth Amendment, it, it states no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And that, of course, applied that to the states after, after black people were freed and they were given the same constitutional rights as white people. So even if you look at uh, – even if you take the view that a state making a law limiting abortion infringes on a woman's liberty without due process, the trimester stuff is completely arbitrary and, as Alito says, is completely egregious. That's the Supreme Court basically writing a law and legislating from the bench. Uh, the bench. That is the exact def- definition of legislating from the bench because they just, it was completely arbitrary, which is why that was uh, later changed during the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision. Planned Parenthood versus Casey it, uh, took away the strict scrutiny. And it also did away with the trimester framework that Roe v. Wade established in favor of a standard based on fetal viability. So the Casey decision said that states can make abortion illegal in some instances if it's after the fetus is viable. This is the thing like a lot of the freaking out that you see on the left. It's not making abortion illegal nationwide. All this does is return it to the states to decide so the people's elected representatives can debate this stuff. And in a blue state, hey, they can make a law that's even stricter than Roe v. Wade if they want to. So, of course, as we said, it is raining today in the Washington, D.C., Arlington area. And all this raining, it's been raining consistently since last night, like since like about like 9 p.m. And it's going to rain all day and even a little bit tomorrow morning i think all of that combined cannot amount to a fraction of the tears that are being shed by leftists by feminists and it is glorious let's start with some of the high profile ones and i'll work my way down to my favorite clip my favorite coping and seething clip from this whole thing um so let's start let's start with where else can we start the view because why not Whoopi goldberg had some very interesting things to say about this but i will tell you this is my body and nobody, you, you know, you got people telling me I got to wear a mask or don't wear a mask or do this. Everybody wants to tell me what to do. Oh, so but, she's anti-mask now. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, that that sounds a little bit like you're you're an anti-vaxxer now, Whoopi. Interesting. <laughs> huh. Gee, I, wait. Where was this Whoopi last year? Yeah. Where was this Whoopi at the start of 2020? Yeah, I would love to know. But you won't let me make my decision about my body. You are not the person to make that decision. My doctor and myself and my child, that's who makes the decision. Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I got to... First of all, before I even get to the punchline, let's get rid of the elephant in the room. And I'm not talking about Whoopi herself. Um, (laughs) Whoopi Goldberg is 66 years old, Okay. She is never going to have to worry about getting an abortion or getting to that point of facing the question of an abortion ever again for the rest of her life. So, no, it doesn't affect you, Whoopi, just because you're a woman. That's part of the the broader narrative the left has successfully framed. This is men versus women. Women support abortion and men don't, which is objectively false. I mean, Jacob, some of the people you and I know in in our personal lives, some of our friends here in D.C., the most passionate pro-lifers are young women. Mm -hmm. So to make – and you look at the March for Life. It's overwhelmingly young women, college-age women. So that's garbage. But the point at the very end there, she says, I don't know if she even realized what she just said. It's a decision between myself, my doctor, and my child. So first off, you're acknowledging that's a child then. It's yeah. not just some clump of cells to be, you know, gotten rid of, almost like a tumor. But what do you, it's a decision to be made with your child, the decision to have an abortion. What, do you put a stethoscope to your belly and uh, get the fetus's input before you make the final decision? Like, well, kick, to, kick twice for life, kick once for abortion. Oh my god. And she it gets even worse. I mean, because that's that could just be a slip of the tongue. She didn't realize what she said. Then it gets She even seems worse. to be she seems to have a lot of this stuff. Remember the thing she said about uh, the Holocaust. About the Holocaust? Yeah, yeah she seems, <laughs> this seems to be a, a theme with this woman. But then she went on to say this. Women, when they decide 
something is not right for them, they're going to take it into their own hands. By the way, there's dramatic music playing over the background because this is a Fox News highlight, by the way. This is not taken straight from the show. But that's why there's there's a soundtrack to her crazy rantings here. But we got tired of tripping over women in bathrooms, public bathrooms, who were giving themselves abortions because there was nowhere safe, nowhere clean, nowhere to go. Hold on. So, Jacob, I need a history lesson here. Was there really an epidemic of, like, entire just piles of bodies of women littering public bathrooms because they were just getting abortions all over the place before Roe? Is that a thing that was happening? No, I don't – I've only – I don't have a PhD in history. I couldn't really authoritatively tell you that. You would need to go consult with a PhD in history. I'm sure uh, one of the local professors around here could enlighten you on that. These people live in a fantasy world. They really do. People like Whoopi and these others. They and that's the reason why they like they dress up in cosplay as the Handmaid's Tale. They want to project whenever their first world problems arise, and whenever something is inconvenient them for the, for their affluent lifestyle, like oh, I can't kill my child on demand and for free now. They have to try to project their fears and concerns as if this is some fantasy world in their works of fiction. They pretend they're in The Handmaid's Tale. They pretend they're that woman from The Hunger Games with a bow and arrow, like, yeah, because feminism. When in reality, they are just sad, lonely losers who can't accept the fact that now infanticide is going to be illegal soon. This law came about because people wanted people to have somewhere safe and somewhere clean. It has nothing to do with your religion. This is not a religious issue. This is a human issue. You, you mean like the 63 million humans who have been aborted since Roe? Well, well, one thing I want to point out is she said this law. Yeah, it's not a law. That's the thing. She doesn't know what a – and this is kind of what the Supreme Court has become. It's become another legislature. It's just yes. become a co-equal branch of, of the oh, – I mean not even a co-equal branch. It's basically – a superior branch it's the most to Congress, branch. yeah, and they see a Supreme Court decision as a law, as a as a legislative act. Getting an abortion is not easy. Making that decision is not easy. It's not something people do lightly. It's not something that you can just do. It it is a hard, awful decision that people make. Really, Whoopi? Then why is it that someone like comedian Michelle Wolf, a leftist, literally performed a, a, a stage show in 2018 called "A Salute to Abortion"? Why is it that you guys like you know hold up your signs, you shout your abortions, celebrate your abortions? You guys have sensationalized this and turned this into a women's rights issue as something to celebrate. And now that it's about to come to an end, you suddenly want to say, "Oh no, this is not easy. We know this isn't easy." Then why were you acting like it was such a great thing to celebrate? Why you were taking it for granted? It's granted, it's not something that should have been taken for granted because it never should have existed in the first place. But you don't get to turn around now and say, oh, this is hard. This is this is something we've never really liked to begin with. This is something we've tolerated. Like, no, 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 no. You don't get to hedge your bets now, woman. Sorry. And if you don't have the wherewithal to understand that, to start this conversation with, I know how hard this must be for you. If you're starting it by telling me I'm going to burn in hell, then you're not looking out for me as a human being, whether I subscribe to your religion or not. And that is not okay. It's not a matter of religion, Whoopi. It's a matter of murder, which is illegal and immoral and unethical, no matter which religion you subscribe to. Sorry, you don't get to make those rules. That is not how it works. But of course, not to be outdone by her co-host, we have <laughs> Joy Behar. It, I got to Jacob, who do you think is more annoying between the two? I, I have a hard time choosing. Whoopi is more entertaining, that's a good point. Yeah, Joy Behar is just obnoxious and dumb, as this clip is evidence of. Not that I'm surprised. 
You and I were talking before. Yeah. We're not surprised. We saw this coming. My worry is that this is just the beginning. Next, they'll go after gay marriage, and and maybe maybe uh, uh, the board, the what is it, Brown versus Board of Education? Yeah. They already eroded our voting rights a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So I see some. I see fascism down the line here. Fascism, guys, because we can't kill babies anymore. Well, it shows you that they view how they view America's past. They view America as a fascist nation before Brown v. Board of Education, before the gay marriage. Um, what was that one? Uh, Obergefell in 2015. Yes. Uh, before Roe v. Wade, they view the United States as a fascist nation. This is their viewpoint of American history. So th- this is proof. I mean, well, as if you needed any more of it, that we cannot coexist with these people in this country. So now let's turn to the political. And this is a fairly long clip, but it's worth going through just listening to this woman have a meltdown. Never fear the wrath of an Indian woman scorn. I mean, sorry, I mean, sorry, a Native American woman. And again, this Elizabeth Warren is, I think, 70. I think she, she's she's not a spring chicken either. You know, she's older than Whoopi Goldberg. So why does she care? Why is she so invested? She should not care about this either. I am angry because of who will pay the price for this. Yes. It will not be wealthy women. Wealthy women can get on an airplane. They can fly to another state. They can fly to another country. They can get the protection they Congratulations, you just described your base, Elizabeth Warren. Nicely done. This will fall on the poorest women in our country. This will fall on the young women who have been abused, who are victims of incest. This will fall. And that, again, they rush to the extreme example. You always hear about this. What about rape, incest, rape and incest, rape and incest? That makes up a fraction of a percentage point. Of the total number of abortions. The vast majority of abortions are through consensual sex, through perfectly normal sex that have nothing to do with extraordinary circumstances like this. They always rush to the small percentages and make it seem like that's the only way a woman will have an abortion is if it's violent or if it's non-consensual. But it also plays into this idea that poor people in America engage in incest. This is kind of like a common trope among academics that you got the the poor rural folks that are all out there screwing their cousins and their sisters and everything. This is is, whereas incest has never been a thing in the United States with any demographic and this one is the best this was texted to me by a buddy of mine actually in arizona who saw this this is glorious so this is from the protest outside the supreme court the night of so this is around midnight give or take so this is or actually the twitter the tweet was posted about 10.05 so this is a couple hours after the news broke um so for those of you who can't see again because it's an audio podcast it's a video of two women outside the supreme court it's a smaller crowd that's gathered there's already barricades put up Uh, a lot of them are kind of sitting you know tribal cross-legged style in front of the barricades It's two women here, a younger woman and an older woman, and they are arguing, but as you will soon hear in the video, they are both on the same side of the abortion issue. They both support abortion, and they're already arguing. My guess from what happened before they started recording, 
is the older woman is basically saying, oh, we need to be tactical about this. We need to be opt- optical about this in our resistance. We don't need to freak out and give them ammunition by giving them a bad reaction. We should be, you know, methodical about this. We need to be, you know, relatively civil, but civil disobedience. And the younger woman, who definitely looks like a college student, is basically like, no, screw that. I want to scream and I want to make a scene. Dude, don't be like that with me. No, because but, we're on the same side of this issue, and okay, I don't need you to be like that you, with me. No, and I'm not, not, I'm not an asshole. Not, so I want to be quiet about it, because I want to be loud about it. The little, I want to be, I don't want to be quiet. That sounds kind of like how Capitol Hill staffers talk, Jacob. This woman could be a Capitol Hill staffer, for all we know. Oh yeah, sorry. There's gonna be language in this video, guys, for obvious reasons. A quiet mouse about them taking our rights away. by the way the guy who's saying are you angry are you angry uh he's wearing a pink shirt and a scarf so um oh i i'm gosh. i think it's quite obvious why this individual is here there's several men around kind of orbiting the younger girl and i gotta say this i'm sorry any every any and every single man a male because again there are only two genders who attend unironically attends a pro-abortion demonstration is only there for two reasons they are either gay or they are desperate so this guy obviously is uh the former and i can tell a few these other guys seem more like the latter and again and that's so it's that's another i think a pro-abortion guy shouting at the girl to shut the <laughs> f up and that's another thing too you listen to how she's talking she suddenly latches onto church mouse she keeps saying church mouse over and over and over again i think maybe she could be an interesting congressional staffer maybe this is a college student who probably read that phrase church mouse in like one of her reading assigned readings for english literature and she thinks she sounds sophisticated and clever by repeating it so now she's just repeating it over and over again again like handmaid's tale tile you know, style uh drama dramatic depiction of this whole thing I love that the one guy, again, it, this one guy, it pans over to him and he's fist bumping in the air. Woo! And then he's clearly alone. He doesn't seem to have any people with him who are on his side. He's in the he's in the lion's den surrounded by pro-abortion protesters here. I love you hear the one guy behind the camera turn to the guy who's trolling her who said, cope and see, you lost baby killer. The one guy turns, that, turns over to that guy and says, you really have nothing better to do? You have no life that you're out here? Dude, you are at the Supreme Court too. You are also out here at right, 10 p.m. Right. at night to support abortion. If that guy doesn't have a life because he's here to troll these people, you definitely do not have a life, buddy. So you are not one to talk. Oh, 
That, when I saw oh, that, man. I knew that was going to be gold. I want to meet that man, and I want to buy him several drinks. That man is a legend, because, of course, Cope and Seed, I think that's the first the first time, at least in my time, Jacob, I have ever seen Cope and Seed use IRL. I've only seen it on the internet. I've only seen it on message boards, you know, memes and whatnot. I have, that's the first time seeing it in the real world, and it was every bit as oh, yeah. delicious as I expected it would be. If you were to tell me someone is going to shout Cope and Seed at pro-abortion protesters, I would have imagined it would be at least half as awesome as that, and that exceeded expectations. So bravo to you, good sir, Godspeed. And uh, yeah, cry harder, little Miss Church Mouse. One thing, if you notice, no progressive is out there defending the Roe legal logic. I haven't heard a single progressive or Democrat out there arguing on the merits of Roe v. Wade. All they're doing is fear-mongering about, okay, now women are going to have to commit abortions with coat hangers and back alleys. No one has actually taken the logic of those seven justices in 1973 and defended it because it's indefensible. You can't look at the way they ruled and say, yes, that's definitely strict constitutionalism. They followed the law because they didn't. They legislated from the bench. They created a law out of thin air that never existed. They created a new right that had never existed throughout history and uh, just codified it into law. So no progressive is out there defending the road logic. But one thing is uh, – and the reason is, of course, they don't believe in constitutional government. And this is one thing I've heard it called – They um, the, the their theory is basically um, the mandate of history, You know, playing off of the, the mandate of heaven, which is the Chinese philosophy that legitimized the Chinese emperors. They legitimize their progressive rule, their progressive dictatorship by believing that they are on the right side of history. So to kind of get a, you know, get an idea of what life post-Roe is going to be like in America, all we have to do is go look at life pre-Roe. What did the country look like as far as our abortion laws before Roe v. Wade was decided? One of the reasons why Roe v. Wade was such a big deal whenever it was handed down was because it was such a radical departure from where we were as a country on abortion laws before that. So to go back to a little bit, kind of go turn the clock way back in history— Remember, our Constitution is based on English common law. That's the English common law was the basis for our Constitution. A lot of people argue, well, it's based on the Bible. It's based on the – no, it was based on English common law, which is basically judicial precedent according to English traditions. In English common law, abortion was illegal after quickening. Quickening meaning whenever the baby started to kick, whenever there was movement of the child. So therefore, no woman – if you go back to the Ninth Amendment, remember the Ninth Amendment claimed that – the laws enunciated in the Bill of Rights and in the Constitution did not take away from laws and that were traditionally understood to belong to the people. So a woman could take the Ninth Amendment and say, well, look, we have a right to abortion because just because the Constitution doesn't say that you have the right to abortion doesn't mean that we don't have because according to the Ninth Amendment, we still possess those rights in the past. But the reality is the English common law did not recognize a right to abortion after a baby started kicking. So abortion traditionally was always illegal going back hundreds of years in England before uh, the early 1800s. In the early 1800s, you start to see laws put on the books in American states outlawing abortion and putting criminal penalties on the books for people who committed, uh, commit abortions. In New York, for instance, they passed a law in the 1820s that made it a felony to kill a baby after quickening, which is typically uh, about 16 weeks, 16 to 22 weeks whenever the baby starts to move around in, in the mother's belly. So after uh, – in, in the 1820s, they passed a law that made it a felony to kill a baby after quickening and made it a misdemeanor to kill a baby before the quickening. And this law was replicated in multiple states. It wasn't until the 1850s that you start to see states really start to crack down on abortion. It became a major issue. You had uh, – the American Medical Association was lobbying 
both Congress and state legislatures to make abortion illegal because they started to debate this, this issue of abortion as uh, medical science uh, as, it, uh, as it advanced, and they came to the conclusion that it violated the Hippocratic Oath to kill a baby in a mother's womb. Another thing, another interesting fact about the 19th century is the feminists of the day were all against abortion. They all spoke out very strongly against abortion. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, which is why you have the pro-life organization uh, called the Susan B. Anthony List. So all of these these feminists from the, 20, from the 19th century, they were very much against abortion. You didn't really have any advocates out there arguing that it's okay to have an abortion, that abortion is a good thing. By the turn of the 20th century, the federal Comstock law made it illegal to disseminate information on how to have an abortion. So you couldn't even write the, you know, here's how, you, you know, turn coat hanger this way, you know, to, to do how, how to do the procedure. You could not or even to let amateur doctors know how to do the procedure without getting locked up. So that which was a radical departure from where we are today. But not only that, but by the turn of the 20th century, pretty much every state in the country had made abortion a felony at this point. And they not only made it a felony for doctors, they also made it a felony for mothers who went to a doctor to have their baby killed. A lot of people argue, oh, well, you know, if abortion is made illegal, we'll just go after the doctors. We won't go after the mothers. Well, no, they went after the mothers, too, because the mothers were making the conscious decision to have their baby killed. Some states included provisions that allowed for abortion in limited circumstances. And generally, this was only to protect the women, the woman's life or her health and her physical health, which is important. We'll come back to it in a second. But that was, it was to protect her health or her life. Sometimes they made a rare exception in the case of incest or rape. In the 1960s, Americans started to debate abortion for the first time because it was really never a debate before the 1960s. It was kind of agreed upon that if a woman kills her baby in her womb, she has killed a human being. If a doctor yes. performs this procedure, he has killed a human being, which is why the American medical profession in the 19th century was universally against abortion. They were universally – they wanted it outlawed. They wanted these people, these doctors, these quacks who were performing abortions to be locked up in prison. In the 1960s, Americans started to have serious policy debates about when abortion is permissible, what the penalties for abortion doctors should be, stuff like that. One high-profile case was a woman who had a deformed baby. And she went to Sweden to have a legal abortion. And um, apparently she had been taking sleeping pills that had caused the baby to be deformed. She was a married woman, had several children already, and she didn't want the baby to be deformed. This kind of goes back into the debate of whether or not euthanasia is okay because uh, a lot of people argue, well, you don't want that baby to be born because they're going to be deformed. They'll have a miserable life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that, argument, that was a huge deal, and I believe she was profiled by the San Francisco Chronicle, the main uh, newspaper in San Francisco. There, uh, the medical community also classified things like the morning-after pill as contraception for the first time rather than an abortifacient. Uh, several states began in the mid to late 60s to liberalize their laws uh, to allow abortion in cases of rape and incest or to expand on the language, the terminology of what it meant to be a danger to the health of the mother. The state of Washington held a referendum that allowed early pregnancy abortions, and other states allowed it in the first and second trimesters. Another instance was in Washington, D.C. They passed a law that allowed abortions when the health of the mother was at risk. And a woman decided she wanted to have an abortion because her psychological health was at risk, not her physical health. And it was taken to the Supreme Court in 1971. The Supreme Court ruled that if a state has, uh, or in this case D.C., has a law in the books that allows abortion for the health of the mother, then her psychological health can also be taken into account. This essentially made abortion legal in D.C. two years before Roe v. Wade because any woman can say, well, it's just too much of a psychological strain on me to have this baby to term. I have to kill it. So 
that it was very obvious where the Supreme Court was going in 1971 when they ruled on that. At the time of Roe, when Roe v. Wade was passed, abortion was completely illegal in all instances in 30 states. It was legal in some instances in 16 states. It was legal in the case of the health or life of the mother, and it was like four other states where they made exceptions for rape or incest. So in the overwhelming majority of states, abortion was completely illegal across the board. That's one of the reasons why Roe v. Wade was such a landmark decision because it wasn't like like it would be today. So today after Roe v. Wade, what you're going to have is you're going to have like 20 states, 25 states that are going to keep the standard the same as under Roe. Some of them will actually go further, like Massachusetts. Their wonderful Republican governor, Charlie Baker, decided to pass a law that would make it easier to have an abortion, but also to make it part of Massachusetts law that abortion will always be legal there because he was concerned that Trump was appointing pro-life justices and they could potentially overturn Roe v. Wade. So you're seeing this with Gavin Newsom in California. It's like that we are going to be the abortion state. You can come to us to us to have your abortions. We'll keep it legal. And under the Constitution, they can do that. So once Roe v. Wade is repealed, it's going to go back to the state level. Now, the debate of when life begins and when babies deserve legal protection is something that will actually um, have to be decided by uh, by voters and their elected officials. Because one thing that the Roe decision got right whenever the court uh, decided on that, they said, quote, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins when those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus. The judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. Uh, The court also correctly pointed out that historically, under English common law and American common law, that no statute at any point ever recognized the unborn to have the same rights as persons born. And this is incredibly important for pro-life people to understand. You can't simply say, well, unborn babies have the same rights as born babies. They don't. Um, Again, our laws are based on the Constitution. Our Constitution is based on English common law. Remember, going back to English common law, when was it that they did not allow abortions? It was after the quickening, after a baby started to kick. At that point, traditionally in Britain, they said, okay, at that point, it is illegal to have an abortion. You can't have an abortion after that. It was, in many instances, illegal to have it before the baby started to kick. And, uh, you know, a doctor wasn't hanged if he committed an abortion, just like a doctor would be hanged if he killed, if he murdered a live patient on his on his bed. So this is this is the difference between so you know you you would have to actually codify if you want a personhood amendment you would actually have to pass that legislation and pass it through the people which is why you're not going to you're not going to treat abortion as murder now that Roe v. Wade is overturned unless you pass a law defining it as murder. So let's go ahead and try to bring this back now to of course contemporary politics. You reference history of course to say you know, what will abortion conditions look like after Roe v. Wade is overturned. But let's also focus on the immediate political implications. According to the leak, this draft was written in February, and it's just now being leaked. And again, the official final announcement was supposed to be in June. That's when they have the mm-hmm. the running of the interns, right? Because there's no electronics allowed in the court. So they literally write down a piece of paper, and then they all go running in front of the building, running to their superiors with the media organizations to be the first one. It's a little race. It's kind of, it's a weird one of those weird little D.C. traditions. So that was supposed to be the official announcement. I so, would say that I don't think this really surprised many people. I think after hearing the oral arguments of this mm-hmm. case, most people knew that they were going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Right. The only question is how much? Would it be kind of a gradual – would it kind of death by a thousand cuts? Would it chop away at Roe? Which most people were not expecting because the draft, as you mentioned, it suggests this will just completely nuke 
Roe v. Wade and Casey. There are mm-hmm. no exceptions being left behind. It's kicking it back to the states completely, which is that was kind of that, I guess, was the shock to most people. They thought, OK, well, we finally have our because we have a realist. We have a six, three majority now. It was always kind of five. It was four, four with one swing justice. It used to be uh, Justice Kennedy. Then it was Robert. He saved Obamacare. He voted uh, to legalize gay marriage. So prior to Ginsburg's death, Ginsburg's death changed everything. And then when the Republicans in the Senate it confirmed Amy Coney Barrett. That was a 6-3 majority, which realistically means a 5-4 majority. We don't know how Roberts voted. Obviously, the other three voted to dissent. We Roberts could join them, and it could be 6-3. Who knows? So the question then comes to, of course, this leak was obviously intentional. We can pretty easily guess this was by a leftist. There's no way. Because this had to have been leaked, they said, by someone with knowledge of the court's proceedings, meaning either a clerk or one of the justices themselves, which is highly unlikely. So it was probably a clerk, most likely a clerk for a left wing, one of the three leftist justices. There's a bunch of speculation on possible culprits. I wouldn't waste any time on that just because we don't really care who the leaker was. They obviously are seeking their five minutes of fame and well, a sweet I, MSNBC gig and a book deal. We're not going to give them any oxygen. Yeah, I, If I had to guess, I would say they, they're convinced that they would be able to gin up enough groundswell of support in favor of the pro-choice crowd. They would be able to convince the justices to, to not, change their opinion, exactly. which, is, which is absurd. You're, it, you're not going to change justices' opinion by getting in front of their house and screaming and yelling. Exactly, for a number of reasons. I mean, for one, basic common sense will tell you that the, the five justices voting overturn this, the, the, so the real conservative justices, when it was announced and how it was announced doesn't matter matter. It's irrelevant whether it was leaked in May or formally announced in June with the running of the interns. There was going to be backlash no matter what. Barricades would go up. Protesters would show up. There'd be screeching. They would get doxxed. That would happen regardless of how it was announced. So if they really feared backlash and mob rule, they never would have ruled this way to begin with. So yeah, I think I don't think they're going to change their mind. So that theory, oh, this was leaked to intimidate the justices. That may very well have been the intention but I don't think it will work. And also because a point that others have made, I hate having to give this guy credit because he's a scumbag, but credit where it's due. He wrote this in Newsweek, Josh Hammer. He said, if this does, if this did convince the justices or at least one or two of them enough to change their mind on a ruling, that would destroy the existence and the meaning of the court's existence for the rest of the history of oh, our yeah. nation. Because if you find out if this means a decision can be made not based on its constitutional merits, but on, oh, can we get enough people to go dox a justice and protest and scream outside their house and throw eggs at them or something? They'll just rule based on that. You don't need a court anymore. There's no reason for court to exist because at that point, like you said, it's a legislative body. And they know that would be destroying the, the important role of the court as first established when our country was founded. It will not succeed. And as you suggested, Jacob, if anything— that will only embolden them to rule this way, to stick it to these people, mm-hmm. to show. Because that, that's what Susan Collins did. Remember, during the Kavanaugh vote, she and her office was getting death threats. They were getting phone calls, threatening phone calls, threatening her, threatening her staffers. Coat hangers were being mailed to her office. They were trying to threaten her and intimidate her into voting against Kavanaugh. And she declared in her speech when she announced she was going to vote for him, and that basically ended the debate, basically saying, oh, if she's going to vote for him, then he's going to go through. She said she would vote to confirm him to spite those people, to Mm -hmm. show I'm not going to be intimidated. Another possible reasoning, was this done to energize Democrat voters, i.e., will this backfire on the right in the midterms? I think, Jacob, I think you and I agree on this one as well. 
I don't think that is what's going no, to happen. It will not. Yeah, exactly. This because twenty years ago, maybe thirty years ago, definitely. But exactly. Not today. Because of course, one thing you're hearing, you're hearing Elizabeth Warren and these others say, "Oh, this is wrong because majority of Americans support abortion. Six out of ten, seven out of ten Americans support abortion." They never cite sources, of course, because they never do. But yeah, like you said, twenty years ago that might have been the case. But there has been a significant shift towards the right culturally in America. Certainly, of course, you're seeing it with CRT and the tranny stuff and everything, but on abortion as well. Public opinion has shifted at the least to perfectly half and half now. It's half support abortion, half don't. It's probably more generous than that on the pro-life side. So they are underestimating, they're severely overestimating, I should say, their own power and their support for this stance and how that reflects the broader American population. But I would also, in the context of politics, this is May. The official decision will be in June. The, prime, the election is not until six months in November. In our news cycle, especially the social media cycle, come November, this will not be on anybody's minds anymore. It will be about as distant as Afghanistan. It's something some people will remember. Some campaign ads here and there will talk about it. It will not be the issue that decides the election. What will still be around in November, most likely, is inflation, the economy, probably the war in Ukraine. Those are going to weigh more heavily on voters' minds. And even then, do you really think a moderate, independent, suburban voter facing these gas prices and grocery prices going up is suddenly going to say, well, I was going to support a Republican because uh, everything's expensive now and my kids are being indoctrinated to hate themselves and uh, possibly mutilate themselves because they're taught to have a different gender identity. But now I'm going to vote for Democrats because abortion. Like well, no. That's what I was going to say. Like The people who are going to vote because of this issue, they were already going to vote for Democrats no matter what. They were going to walk over charted glass to get to the voting booth to vote for Democrats. And it's funny. You see, I, I saw a headline today. That read, yes, Democrats vote harder. It's like, well, you can only vote once. And these, exactly. these diehard feminists, they can only vote once. And it doesn't matter how hard they press that pin down to that ballot. <laughs> it's still one vote. It, it doesn't matter how dark that bubble is. You'll see more fundraising, sure. I mean, Planned Parenthood vowed to spend like another $100 million in the midterm cycle, which obviously Oh, yeah, a lot, a lot of nonprofits will make a lot of you'll, – you'll see a lot of people add, add on to their kitchen here in Virginia, add on to their kitchen in Bethesda, Maryland. They'll, they'll have a few – Buy, maybe buy another Tesla, to, so that'll <laughs> happen. But uh, one thing about the uh, what this does to the pro-life and pro-choice movements is it, it's going to what it's going to do is it's going to blur those terminologies. Before Roe v. Wade, a lot of people I've heard pro-lifers try to make the claim: Well, Martin Luther King was pro-life, trying to convince blacks to vote pro-life. It's like no, that would be like asking Martin Luther King on his opinion on the Iraq War. This happened. <laughs> he was assassinated before Roe v. Wade. This was not an issue. You didn't have pro-lifers and pro-choicers back in the '60s. But the thing is, now really, all that meant if you were pro-life is you were anti-Roe. If you were pro-choice, you were pro-Roe. That's all that meant. With Roe out of the way, the term pro-life and pro-choice is going to become a lot muddier. And here's an example: I was talking to this Australian woman the other day in dc and she asked me where i was from i told her i'm from alabama so i think uh, the i guess the perception they have in australia is you're, if you're from alabama you're automatically republican so <laughs> and this is the thing i've noticed about a lot of foreigners is they'll openly discuss politics americans are very because of the, our political climate we, we're very shy about that they openly discuss politics the first thing they want to talk about they don't see politics as like a civil war the way right, americans right. do basically. and uh she said oh you for or against the the supreme court decision oh i said over oh, bro is the absolute worst decision in supreme court history and then she – rather than discuss the constitutionality because she doesn't understand it at all. She thinks, OK, you're pro, you're, you're anti-abortion. So she goes straight into that. And the more I talked to her, I realized she's not actually that pro-abortion because at first she said – so I asked her, when does life begin? She said, oh, well, when a baby's born. And it wasn't two minutes later, and I mentioned that before a row, some states said you can't have an abortion until four months, till six months. She said, oh, I don't agree with that. So you don't agree with the what? She said, I don't believe that you should be allowed to have an abortion at six months. I said, wait a minute. You just said that a baby isn't a human being until they're born. 
She said, well, women, if they want to have an abortion, they should do it before. They shouldn't do it when a baby is already a, a human being like that. I'm like, But see, this is the thing. If you actually sit down with people and you have a conversation, if you can break through that glass wall that separates you from other people who are scared to talk about politics, and you actually have a conversation, you find out most Democrats are actually pro-life. If you actually get into the nitty gritty, they actually don't believe that abortion should be legal after the first trimester because they do recognize that a baby with a beating heart deserves legal protection. And so this is why I don't think you're really going to have the sharp divide between pro-life and pro-choice like you do nowadays with Roe out of the way. Exactly. Yeah, I was talking to a coworker about that, actually, and um, he said he made another very good point. He said that abortion is one of those things. And this addresses, like you said, you know, how liberals might actually be more pro-life than they think. And certainly the broader cultural shift we mentioned that abortion is one of those things you can really only support if you don't think about it too much. Mm -hmm. If it remains an abstract concept and you do not think about what it actually means, what it entails, what it actually is. Then, of course, you're going to – the general idea because you can then couch it like, oh, you support women's right? You support a woman's right to choose? Well, of course I do. Okay, so that means including killing the baby. This is why the one thing that would drive the left the most insane – and I saw this when I was in college – is pro-life protests that have the images. They have the giant blown-up sandwich board images of aborted fetuses, and it's it's graphic stuff. It's not easy to look at, but if you put them face-to-face with this, they will shriek – and freak out and, of course, mask it in anger, like, how dare you try to take away my right? But deep down inside, that's them covering up their own disgust at seeing what abortion is and realizing, yeah, I support that. That's literally what happened. When I was a, I was a freshman in uh, college when this happened at Santa Barbara, there was an incident that kind of gained national attention because there was a pro-life demonstration on campus, including one of those images. And it was uh, two sisters. It was uh, – I think one of the sisters was like 16 years old, so she, she was a minor. The other one was older. And this professor walked by, this professor who it later turned out, she's a black woman, a fat black woman who unironically taught a class on black women in pornography. That was her class. I don't remember her name, but it's on the Wikipedia page, I think, for the history of UCSB. It was a notable incident. She walked by with a couple of her students, female students, and she saw the sign and she snatched it away. She's like, I'm just going to take this away. She took it away. Like, I'm going to destroy it. And the girl, the 16 year old girl, was like, Stop. That's my sign. That's my property. Give it back. And the professor started hitting her and slashing at her with her giant fingernails, like slashing her, cutting the girl up. Like, she, she drew blood. The girl was injured. And, and her students were helping shove her away. And, like, shove her out the elevator as they retreat into an elevator in a nearby hallway to take the sign away. And later they found the sign had been, like, stabbed and cut up with a bunch of scissors. And the girl is, like, you know, she's being very calm. She's following and her older sister's filming. Um, but she's shouting, like, that's my sign. You're a thief. You're a thief. And the black woman responds, I may be a thief, but you're a terrorist. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, okay. And that was a big incident. Like, there were calls for uh, – You're the charge- terrorist. I support killing babies, but you're the terrorist. Exactly. There were calls for charges against the professor for assault and battery. That absolutely qualified as assault and battery. She was eventually, she eventually entered a plea deal. I think she was sentenced to like 100 hours of community service and some anger management or something like that. So slap on the wrist. Of course, she still got to keep her job. And I remember having debates about this. I was the lone one in my dorm, the whole the entirety of the floor of the dorm I lived on because we had a, a little Facebook group for all of us because, you know, that's that's how we social media brings us together, guys. I was the lone person defending the girl. All the others were saying, I support the professor's actions. I think she's brave and noble in what she did. I'm like, oh, so you support assaulting minors because you don't like what they have to say. And they're like, you don't understand. You don't understand how this was a violation of women's rights. I'm just like, oh. And there are guys saying this too on top of the girls. I'm like, okay, again, you guys should not. You really don't. You're either gay or you're desperate. Desperate, exactly. And I I 
think there were no gay guys on my floor, thankfully, that year. So, yeah, they were all just desperate. But, yeah, so that is why it is so powerful. When you face with them the imagery of what this really means, then they, even the left, the hardcore leftists, the hardest of the hard liberal feminists, they know what how terrible it is, what an evil thing it is. And certainly if you face that with the majority of moderate voters, they see that imagery and they're like, well, that's terrible. I don't support that. But you see them going all in on it on the left. That is why, as you mentioned, in California, there is now a bill to allow post-birth abortions. We first heard this with Ralph Northam, that infamous radio interview he did as governor of Virginia, where he said, you know, we'll keep the baby comfortable, you know, and while the mother makes the decision what to do with it. And, of course, it was unheard of. He tried to walk it back and say, oh, I never said that. I never said that. But, of course, we have the receipts, you know, Ralph, we know you said that. But in California, Gavin Newsom is embracing it. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to be a refuge for abortions now. And you hear like a... Amazon is now willing to offer to pay their employees thousands of dollars to travel to states that have legalized abortion to get an abortion. Like the, some of them are going all in on that, but I think it is kind of a Hail Mary that they know this is about to go the way the dodo as it should have. It deserves to be thrown into the ash heap of history along with Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And that brings me to one other big question to ask, of course. Again, what was the motivation behind this leak? I think the most likely theory. I think the reasoning behind this that is most likely to succeed is to convince Democrats in office in Congress right now to make this their new legislative agenda to pass a federal law legalizing abortion at the national level now as a Hail Mary before they know they lose control in the midterms. I I don't think I mean, I think they will try. Schumer says they are going to hold a vote to codify basically the conditions of Roe v. Wade in federal law. But Manchin and Sinema, they have a half and half at 50-50 Senate. So technically, Kamala could break that tie if it passes the House. But... Manchin and Cinema, once again, God bless them, have said, have reaffirmed they do not support ending the filibuster. So all it takes is a member of Congress, one Republican, Ted Cruz or whoever, to filibuster this thing and kill it until the end of the session or whatever. So that's probably not going to happen. They are trying to tie this, as we heard certainly from uh, the Joy Behar clip. They're trying to tie this into everything else. They're trying to say, oh, if they're going to overturn Roe, they're going to overturn gay marriage. They're going to overturn Brown for support of education. They're going to bring back segregation. They're trying to tie this to make it sound like this affects all the minorities that make up their coalition. They're trying to make it sound like they're going to come for the gays next, which, I mean, there is certainly a case based on this to overturn Obergefell as well, because that definitely did not hold any solid constitutional footing if Roe v. Wade certainly didn't. So now we want to talk to a very special guest. We have another guest interview for you guys here at The Right Take. Of course, you may remember a couple months back, Jacob and I were graciously invited to go speak in California, our first ever speaking engagement as the right take at something called the California Republican Assembly, a grassroots conservative organization that is dedicated to maintaining real conservatism and basically kind of pulling the California GOP back in line whenever they get a little too much into moderate territory, as it were. And of course, we met a lot of great people at that convention, including a lot of candidates for office. And one individual we met, we have with us today, he is a candidate for the ninth congressional district of california james shoemaker jim welcome to the right take hey well thank you very much eric i really appreciated you guys and it was a pleasure meeting you at the cra state convention it was great to meet you as well jim so uh when we were discussing the interview uh prior to when we were setting it up you said and this was an email exchange before the news broke monday about the uh supreme court decision on Roe v. Wade. You wanted to talk about pro-life issues. So that shows it already was a relevant part of your campaign prior to this absolute earthquake decision that we got Monday. So uh, Jim, want to tell us a little bit about how that fits into your platform for Congress in California? 
Well, very much so. It, it's, a, it's a critical issue for me. Uh, I've been involved in that, that uh, pro-life movement for 40 years. Um, started in high school. So uh, going back, I just have always looked at the fact that, you know, in protecting the unborn as much as we protect the living is something that is uh, critical to our faith and, and our nation as a whole. Uh, when, you, uh, when you take life in such uh, the way that this country is doing it right now, I'd say not the majority, but a, a faction that degrades life to the extent that you can throw it away, uh, it reflects then into our entire society. And you can see the breakdown in our society today. And so that's where we're really coming at this from. And in my campaign, uh, I have some opponents that are all pro-choice. And, and so I'm kind of the one that's out there. And it's on all our literature. It's on all our stuff. Um, and in my conversations with many people that have called me, uh, some on the other side uh, who disagree with me, but yet we still find common ground in other areas. But as I let them know, I won't compromise on life. That's really good to hear because, of course, in California, there's no shortage of pro-choice Republicans. I know this from a lifetime in California myself. And it's, it's, yeah. it's really important what you said, too, because we were talking earlier about how obviously a big part of abortion is that it was a cornerstone of the sexual revolution and encouraging recklessness and irresponsibility because, oh, if you, if you make a whoopsie, you can just get an abortion and don't worry about it. But it also ties to what you said. It's the value of human life and trying to reduce – a, a new living being, a new human to, oh, it's just a clump of cells. It's just something that can be removed like a tumor, and it's not an actual living being already. It's heartless. It's You could even call it demonic. It's just downright immoral and unethical. And again, to see it possibly all that come to an end in 49 years, thanks to this wonderful decision, is truly great news. It, 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 it will be. I mean, uh, the challenge we'll still have that people don't really understand is this just takes the national aspect away from abortion. Uh, but Roe v. Wade actually, what it actually did that the media kind of uh, sidestepped was the fact it wasn't so much giving the rights to women, it was giving the right to a doctor to make a dec- decisive decision to murder. And, and that's, what the, that's what the law actually is about. Um, and the idea that, you know, this is going to, you know, stop. Well, California right now is already in uh, a mode to be the state to go to if you need an abortion. And uh, we had a very large um, contingent here, uh, myself also speaking at the state capitol against our AB 2223, which opens the door to murdering a living baby up until 30 days after birth so this is the atrociousness that we're dealing with so so the idea is we'll get the federal out of it but at the state level we're still going to be fighting that's right i believe newsom and other democrats in california even pledged they are going to push now for an amendment to the state constitution making an abortion a constitutional right in the state of California. They're going to be the haven for abortions now. It's it's absolutely sickening. Yes. But yeah, and, so and, oh, go ahead. No, I, I I was going to agree. That's that's our battle and as we as I'm out on the campaign trail and 
and in our organization, because I am the president still of uh, the California Republican Assembly here in, in, in my county here in San Joaquin. Very nice. Uh, we, we, we won't endorse any Republican candidate that is not pro-life. And that's been a stance of our organization for many, many years. And um, we, we, we get attacked many times because there may be only one Republican in the race. Um, and they come to me and, as the president and our, and our board and they'll go, well, you have to endorse. And I say, well, we won't. You're not pro-life. Uh, we won't endorse in that. And, and that's what's wonderful about the California Republican Assembly above almost all other Republican groups in California is we have the autonomy to be separate from that. We can make those choices and run our organization the way we do. Exactly. So. It's better to make no endorsement than a bad endorsement, especially when it Amen. comes to our side. Amen. Amen. So, <laughs> of course, there are plenty of other issues affecting your campaign as well that you are running on in your bid to become yes. the next congressman from District 9. Not just issues at the national level, but issues at yeah. kind of a niche level for your district, obviously, that impacts your constituents. That I saw one in particular that, of course, affected me very well with where I come from. Because you said since San Joaquin, I'm also from the San Joaquin Valley uh, just outside of Fresno. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. mine is the district of David Valadeo, one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump. But yes. it, it is overwhelmingly a farming district nonetheless. Uh, Valadeo himself was a farmer. Our former state senator, Andy Vidak, is a farmer. And one of the issues that affects voters there in the Central Valley, California, is the water crisis. And I think how this is relevant to the national scene is that this is very indicative of what Democrats' end goal is with green energy, renewable energy, energy alternatives, the Green New Deal – is they want – they know there really isn't a global warming crisis. They know there is no science behind that. They have to create a crisis artificially to then say, oh, look, we need renewable energy. And nowhere is this more relevant than the water crisis where, of course, among other things, there was all this irrigation water that was very crucial to farming to the Central Valley of California, yes. the breadbasket of California, the breadbasket yes. of America, if not the breadbasket of the world. And you saw yep. millions of gallons of water under Jerry Brown's governorship flushed through the rivers out to the sea, all for the purpose of saving an endangered species of fish, literally a microscopic fish called yeah. the Delta smelt, so that they could be flushed out to the sea to, to thrive and reproduce or whatever. And that, of course, led to the drought, which happened, which now crops are drying up. Businesses are going out of business. Farmers are not able to grow their crops and, and their other products, feed their, you know, water their animals and whatnot. And now they want to turn around and say, oh, this is a result of global warming. This is why we need renewable energy. So, Jim, what is it you plan to do to address the water crisis as congressman from the 9th District? Well, in California, we had the federal and the state water projects. Under Trump, he, he, uh, uh, he was working to authorize funds to the state of California to increase our water storage ability. This is something else at a congressional level we'll have to work on. The problem we also run into California is we're fighting the governor and the legislature here and the environmentalists. Uh, I have posted on my website, you know, my water stance, mainly with Auburn Dam, Sites, Sites Reservoir, and numerous other projects that we'd be able to work on to uh, have water. The one thing that's not being talked about very much is what you brought up, the Delta smelt. You know, here's this fish that we're supposed to save, and yet we have an intrusive, and I'm not a fisherman. I have lots of friends that are, but I can't tell you one bass from another bass. So 
but my understanding is is uh, most of the bass that we have uh, in the delta aren't even native and they are thriving on the delta smelt than other small fish which for some reason they can't find right now so in the idea of they're using the water you know for the fish what isn't being talked about is the actual pollution being created in the San Francisco Bay Area by all the cities, San Francisco, Oakland, Alameda, San Jose, all them other cities there that have not upgraded their sanitation systems. And so when they overflow, they flood the bay. So they pollute the bay. So the bay has to have a certain percentage of water going through it to flush the San Francisco Bay out. Now, I have surfed, and I've been a surfer, and I've been told when we're not allowed to surf along the coast south of San Francisco is because most likely now I've learned because they were flushing the bay out, which then puts all the pollution out into the ocean and along the coast. These are things that when I listen to environmentalists talk about these issues, they don't look in the mirror. But at the same time, they're only looking at the lawsuits and generating money for themselves not to fix anything but just to have something to bitch about and honestly I go what we're coming down to is our farmers are suffering under this administration and previous administrations in this state that have refused to move water the way it should be we had a huge rain it dropped six seven inches in 24 hours we could have flooded the entire central valley with like an inch or two inches of water to the grapevine here Um, we have the water we know how to store it we know how to move it we have people that don't want to do it and this is a man-made situation and as you brought up with global warming the nonsense i have I have some papers we're going to be putting on the website here shortly, um, going back to when we were going to be an ice age from the you know late 60s, 70s, and 80s. We we're going to be all living in igloos. Um, you know, these are the same you know doom and gloom and uh, you know and quote scientists that tell us you know they know stuff about the the weather and the and the globe. But you know, God created this planet, and when He created it, He created it with cycles. And um, we need to start living in reality and not fantasy land and quit scaring our population and with fear uh, and give them hope to know that, you know what, God's blessed us greatly in this nation and we need to start uh, honoring him again and bringing this back. That uh, we don't have this problem. We have a man-made problem and we can fix it. That's exactly true. I remember when President Trump actually came to visit the Central Valley to address the water crisis in Central California. He actually met a friend of mine in person for the discussion they had. And he at one point remarked to the press, he said, you know, what's happening here? This really isn't a drought. And of course, the media ran away with Trump denies that there's a drought in California, global warming denier. But what he was saying is 
this isn't a drought because droughts are natural. This is a man-made crisis, which means it's not a drought. This is a man-made crisis. And as you mentioned, yeah, the the way these environmentalists, these AOC, Greta Thunberg, green energy types, they cause so much pollution themselves and don't realize it because they don't really know the science. They're not smart. They don't do that research for themselves. I remember when I went to college in Santa Barbara, there was a similar issue because, of course, off the coast of Santa Barbara there in Goleta, there's all those oil rigs. And what I learned was advocates for fracking pointed out in Santa Barbara, of course, there are all these fissures that open up at the bottom of the sea, like just off the coast. So that allowed the oil reserves under the water, under the surface of the sea, rather, that were there naturally to leak out and seep up and go all the way to the surface of the water. And then you would see these big tar balls on the beach. You'll just – the beach is covered in tar, not because of an oil spill. That was natural. Fracking advocates pointed out if you frack, you're essentially drilling down into the earth. You're sucking the oil out from there so that it's not going to leak up into the ocean in the first place. You're taking the oil out and putting it to good use as natural gas here for us to use. So you're actually fighting pollution by fracking. But, of course, I explained that to leftists at UCSB and their Windows XP shut down. Their brains could not (laughs) comprehend it. They just absolutely (laughs) refused to accept the actual science of this. Yes, yes, and 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 that and that really comes down to, you know, mentioning that because I actually used to surf down there years and years ago and dealt with the tar balls that we we'd have along the beach and in that area, and, and that's the dilemma with this. This is this goes back to phony science, phony man-made stuff to create fear and and put fear into our citizens, and this is where we have to stop. This also falls into, to me, a national security issue. We've dealt, we just came through COVID. COVID was created in China, most likely with the help of the United States somewhere in there. And in all of that, what we've learned is all these products that we have to have medically are manufactured in China. And so we had shortages. And this is another issue that I want to focus on as a congressman, and that is to target these businesses to bring them back to our country. So we are America first, take care of our country and our citizens so that we have the ability medically to be able to take care of us without relying that we have to get a mask from China or, or other you know, drugs and other things that they're producing. And then at the same time, looking at computer chips that are manufactured outside this country. But that was our government, our United States government, through legislation and and environmentalism, put many of our businesses out of business or they moved overseas. Fertilizer for farming, agriculture is produced in Russia and a couple other countries who we're not friends with. But they had to go outside because our government put our businesses out of business and moved them. And and when you look at national security, we shouldn't be sending our uh, swabs. You know, when they were swabbing us with for COVID, what I found out within our own county here, our board of supervisors here in this county contracted with a company that was sending our swabs to china for dna testing and stuff and it was like going 
I brought this up at a board meeting because I, I talked about it at the board. I've talked about it at a couple other locate uh, other forums that I've been part of because uh, actually my Republican opponent, who is a supervisor here, voted unanimously for this, uh, re actually reissuing another contract to uh, this company who is now under investigation in Los Angeles. And the board of supervisors down there are all under investigation for payoffs and other things to this company. So we have companies that China controls, China is part of. They're infiltrated our government. They've infiltrated all venues that we have in this country. And it isn't for the betterment of our nation. Absolutely. They are they're going after us and people, you know, this idea, the war that's going on in Ukraine right now is devastating. But, you know, to me, that's a sideshow to what's happening in the rest of the world and being used to take our our focus away from China and the other issues that this nation's dealing with. I guess to, to break it down to more specifics, um, what is your position on tariffs? Because you mentioned bringing, um, bringing companies back to the United States. Um, a lot of these companies have been offshore. And do you th uh, feel that tariffs would be uh, an effective way of doing that? Well, I, I think where, what we have to look at is, is look at I, – I, I want to go back to how this nation – if I could, I'd get rid of the Federal Reserve. I would, I would go back to real money. Uh, I want to audit the Fed also. Uh, and, and I think in a lot of that, when we look at our tariffs, what was the idea behind the tariff to begin with? That's how we would uh, manage some of that trade that we were doing because I believe in free trade. But I, I don't believe in managed trade, I'm you know, where the government interferes in it. If you want to trade with somebody, that's between you and them and, and, and government – the only thing government needs to do is protect the citizens of this nation and stay out of it. But with tariffs, I think when we look at that right now, you look at Canada and, and this may be an old number, but it was like with milk. Uh, and this is a while back, so I, I don't have accurate numbers. But, you know, uh, Canada uh, would uh, flood us with milk and we would put on this little bitty tariff. But if we sell something to Canada, it's 300, 400%. You know, it's like China right now. You you send something to China and, you know, like I'm in the wine region. I'm in the largest wine region in the United States, which is uh, San Joaquin County, but it's also the Lodi region, which is where I'm coming from right now. And um, when they go to sell wine in China, there's multiple tariffs that are being put on our wine products going there, and yet we're buying the bottles and uh, bottles and all this other stuff from China, and it's coming here. Then they're bottling it here and sending it back. So our industries are being affected negatively by how other governments do that. And our dilemma is: is we're not we, we should be matching equal for equal. What they do with us, we should do with them and leave it at that. Um, and terror, like I said, the problem is is we're doing trade deals that are multiple pages of thousands of pages of law and regulation. How do you keep track of that? There's so many loopholes built into these things, and it always seems to be the American industry is the one that takes a hit on it. So, yeah, I guess that kind of ties into the next thing I was curious about. Uh, do you see these multilateral trade deals as 
preferable to like the NAFTAs or the uh, TAPP or the the Asian uh, Pacific trade deal they're wanting to make? Do you see that as preferable to a bilateral trade deal or would you rather take uh, take the approach of going country by country and doing a bilateral trade deal with each country that we want to trade with? I, I believe we need to get rid of all the globalism we can. We need to remove all these trade deals. Every one of these trade deals is against the United States and designed to bring us under the auspices of a, of a bigger world government. The, the idea behind this is we should trade country to country, like you just said. Mm-hmm. That's the way you handle it. You, you don't do these deals where we're trying to like I said, the, the ultimate goal a while back was to bring Canada, the United States, and Mexico under under the auspices of one, you know, uh, like the European Union. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, we we've you know stopped that, which is a blessing that we've stopped it. Just like with NAFTA, I mean, Trump. I think Trump got an education more than he thought he was going to get when he got involved in some of that, you know, and trying to renegotiate that. And yet the people that negotiated it were just as bad. Um, uh, Not America, you know, not really for America. They were still part of that globalist uh, idea who put the new new agreement together. And it still is negatively affecting the United States. So I'd be I'm against all that. I, I want. Like I said, trade to country to country, and you know, because each one's different, just like each one of us is different. You know, not one size fits all. We got to stop that nonsense. That's exactly right. When it comes to national security, and I know you wanted to talk about this as well, Jacob. A lot of people think yes. that their default is, you know, the war in the Middle East, the war on terror, now the yeah. war on Ukraine. They don't think about what some of the silver linings of COVID exposed how weak our supply chain really is, how much we are dependent on China. Computer chips, like you said, primarily made in Taiwan, which from the looks of what's going on, you know, China's keeping an eye on what Russia's doing. They're eyeing Taiwan the same way Russia is eyeing Ukraine. And if they take over Taiwan, we lose those chips. That is, that's going to make the current supply chain crisis look like a 15 minute wait at the grocery store. It's, you can't even begin to fathom how bad it will be. Exactly. Well, look at our, look at our automakers. They're months behind because they don't have the chips. So, and a number of other industries. Exactly, exactly. So, of course, again, you are running for Congressional District Number 9, where the incumbent is a Democrat by the name of Josh Harder. You mentioned one of yeah. your Republican opponents uh, who does support, you know, basically outsourcing to China. Um, if, yeah. you, if you would like, Jim, feel free to name names. Who are your Republican opponents? Who are the ones who are not America first? Who are you running against for the Republican nomination? I, I am currently running against a uh, – his name is Tom Patty, and he's he's a supervisor here in San Joaquin County. Uh, I did support him when he first ran. And in our conversations when we got into COVID, I started seeing many of our elected officials really falter at what they should have done in defending the citizens that put him into office. And this has been an argument of mine for years and years and years um, there's a book that uh, our organization, our local organization, has literally passed out over 250 of the copies of the, this book, and it's the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And I have preached on this for 35 years and never really knew what to call it. And in September, I received a copy of this book, and I went read it, and I'm going, hold it, this is what we've been talking about for years. The responsibility of elected officials from city council, mayor, 
county supervisors to hold their higher officials accountable by not obeying their edicts or verdicts if it's not law. And then to call and question the law if it is not constitutional and beyond that, if it meets scripture, being, you know, God from the God, because our nation was founded on Christian values and Christian principles. And from that, whether you want to be a believer or not, that's fine. But at least you knew the standard upon what the nation was founded on. And so what's happened here is we've had a number of, uh, and he's really the only opponent I have. Josh Harder, as you mentioned, um, uh, is out there. There is one other Republican, but um, he's not doing anything. I don't know. Uh, some, some of the uh, factions within the state Republican Party uh, dug him up and got him. He's a nice guy. Uh, I'm just going to leave. I won't mention his name because he really isn't in there, but... But Tom is, and, and uh, when I when I put my name up to run, literally it was at eight o'clock on Tuesday night. I announced I was going to be running at our monthly meeting, and um, and we had over seventy people at that. And and then at that, by noon, I was being called by a state party representative to have me drop out of the race. <laughs> wow. So, they worked uh, fast. That And you know what that says there? Because, again, you mentioned this one of the Republican who says not really doing anything. The fact they immediately went to you to ask you to drop out, that shows yes. they're scared of you, Jim. And that is a very, very good sign. Basically, it, it is. And, 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 you know, and it wasn't the only one. I've had numerous calls and others that actually, you know, talk to me in person. But um, I, I've been in this district for over 30-plus years. I grew up in Southern California. Uh, in San Pedro area and down that way. Uh, and I moved up here over 32, 33 years ago. And when I came up here, I've been involved in the farming as a Farm Bureau member and young farmers and ranchers. I was part of the private property rights group that we had in this county uh, down in another section. I, I've been involved in all these civic uh, groups that were fighting for freedom. Um, I mean, even a biker, I, I, I ride. And so it's like we were fighting helmet laws back in the day, you know? So, I mean, nice. it's just, it's just I, I just believe in freedom. I believe you got to make, look, you make your choice and live with the choice you make. And, and uh, in that, we still have to have standards. We have, you know, God's law that, that hasn't failed us when we follow it. And if we get back to it, we could start, stop this nonsense of, where our nation's going because we have such a blessed nation that uh, yes. we need to st we need to defend it we need to protect it you know and and you guys being a whole lot younger than I am I mean you know what I I've been involved when my children were young and uh, I used to take them out precinct walking uh, because I felt you know what we've got to do what we got to we got to stand up and uh, you know and step up and and take on the challenges that we have. And, uh, you know, so, but. <laughs> so, no, thank you so much. I mean, well, first off, I have so many important things to take away from that. I mean, first, as you mentioned, you yeah. know, the freedom to choose responsibly, I think, like you said, that's the difference between conservatism and libertarianism. You have yeah. the freedom to do these things. 
but you should still have morality. You should still make yes. right choices versus libertarianism, which is, oh, yeah, you could, you should be free to shoot yourself, inject yourself with heroin and all that because, hey, whatever you do to your body is your choice, which that's not conservatism. But also, as you no. said, how important the local offices are. Everyone, of course, thinks about Congress, Senate, yeah. governor, president, and those are important. But how the left came to power to begin with starting back in the 60s, the Frankfurt School and the on-the-ground organization, yeah. the the Alinsky model, they ran for those local offices, the school boards and stuff, the little – the district attorney. You're seeing George Soros funding these people. That's yeah. how they crept from the ground up, literally from the grassroots up to take over the That's institutions right. from the inside out. And if we start to do that, as you said, you know, you were active you know, locally and now you're running for Congress. You're seeing these protests, the parents protesting school boards because of critical race yeah. theory and transgenderism. That is how we start to take it back. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a fight, but it's a fight that absolutely has to happen. And it's clear from your platform, you, Jim, are the America First candidate in that primary, and that alone yeah. is good enough reason to support you. So well, by all means, tell, tell our audience, yeah. Jim, where can they reach you? How can they support your campaign? They can reach us at uh, Shoemaker4, and that's the number four, congress.com. Uh, and uh, you can reach us at shoemaker 4 uh, Congress at gmail.com. And uh, so, and then we're on um, Facebook and we're, we're on a number of the other platforms. I, yeah, yeah, I yeah. have a, I have a, I have a great team that's just really stepped up. And so they handle those things that I kind of don't understand all totally, but man, you know what, we're, we're trying to be in the, you know, where everybody's at and try to communicate as best we can. So that, that's important. Social media is important. And yeah, I noticed. Yeah. Cause your campaign is on Instagram as well. So you do have yeah, a always. very good team. You got a great social media team going there for you. Yes. You got a wonderful campaign platform there. Solid Thank America you. first conservative. We support you a hundred percent and guys, Thank you. by all means support his candidacy. He is website shoemaker S H O E M A K E R shoemaker. The number four shoemaker for congress.com. He's on Instagram and Facebook at Shoemaker yeah. for Congress. Jim, thank you so thank you. much. And we'll be God bless looking, you guys. And we'll thank be looking you, forward to the primary. Right. Thank you. All right. You too. God bless. God bless. Once again, guys, be sure to go support Jim's campaign for the U.S. House in any way you can. The primary in California is June 7th. I did not mention this during the interview, but of course, it is June 7th. And remember, in California, they have this really weird jungle primary top two system where only the top two vote getters proceed to the general election regardless of their party. So there are four Democrats running and there are three Republicans running. We got to see our man, Jim, be the top finishing Republican and the second finishing candidate overall behind the incumbent congressman, Democrat Josh Harder. We got to support him. Go to his website, shoemaker for the number four congress.com. Follow him on Instagram. Follow him on Facebook. Support him on social media. Donate if you can. That is an America first candidate in deep blue California. So please go show Jim some support. And that is all the time we have left for this action-packed episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, as always. Be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. We are on a new video platform, by the way, guys. I failed to mention this in the last couple episodes. We have joined odyssey be sure to go subscribe to us on odyssey as well just as you subscribed on BitChute and rumble because youtube deleted another one of our episodes guys one more violation one more committing of wrong think and they will ban us permanently on youtube so be sure to follow us on subscribe there on those alternatives BitChute, rumble and odyssey and if you are feeling ever so generous righttakepodcast.com slash support 
We'll talk to you next week, guys.